The Curbsiders have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer free continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to create your free account and to start claiming CE credit. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, this was a really fun episode for me, mainly because the names just did a such a great job of riling you up. And I have to say, all three names made no sense. And it was totally accidental that they were so irritating to you, but I could not be more delighted by that. Yeah, no, it was it was a bonus that they were just <laughs> utterly nonsensical, but at least um, awful puns on top of that. So really just good times had by all. And we are going to talk about urinary tract infections with our guest, Dr. Bahuma Tatanji, who is fantastic. But before we get to her and her bio, Paul, could you tell the audience, what do we do on this show? Happy to, as always. As a gentle reminder, we are the internal medicine podcast. There are no others. We use expert interviews <laughs> to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we had a great far-reaching and in-depth conversation with Dr. Tatanji about the evaluation and treatment of UTIs. I love how you are literally one of the most humble people I know, but you just love to throw out the, the <laughs> you know, uh, when talking about the podcast, you know. Anyway, so our guest, Dr. Bahuma Tatanji, MD, MSc, DTMNH, PhD. Yes, that's right. She is a physician scientist at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. She is a self-proclaimed enthusiast of all things ID and loves sharing that passion with learners at all stages, which really comes through on the show tonight. In her free time, she enjoys blogging for a general audience on global health topics. Uh, we will link to that in the show notes. She also loves cooking, singing, jazz music, and interacting with medical professionals around the globe through the Twitterverse. You should all follow her on Twitter, at Bohuma, B-O-G-H-U-M-A. And without further ado, here is our conversation on urinary tract infections. And Paul, I feel like there definitely would have been a pun if Stuart was here. Yeah, it would have been uncomfortable for everyone. <laughs> Bahuma, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for this topic. I don't know why we haven't done this sooner, but before we start talking about UTIs, everyone wants to know, who are you? Tell them tell them a little bit about yourself. Tell them about your hobbies. I know I know you have a lot of interesting things, so let's let's hear about it. Hi, everyone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you guys for having me on the podcast. I'm a huge fan and I'm delighted to be here as a guest. My name is Bahuma Titanji and I go by BK. So Bahuma or BK is perfectly fine. I'm a third year ID fellow at Emory University and I am committed to a fourth year. I also did my residency training at Emory. And prior to coming to Emory, I spent uh, a couple of years in the UK doing postgraduate training in tropical diseases and virology. I'm originally from Cameroon. And outside of medicine, I um, really, really enjoy um, maintaining a patio garden and I grow lots of vegetables on my patio. So I'm a bit of an urban gardener. I'm also... Um, a huge fan of jazz. And in my downtime, I, I do sing some jazz music. And I love to have friends over to try Cameroonian cuisine when I get a chance to cook. So that's about me in a nutshell. That, I, that, amazing. Um, thank you for being with us. That All that makes me feel bad about myself. Let me, <laughs> I, I want to, just because I don't have hobbies, I'm not really good at much of anything. So I mean, I'm in, it's inspiring. And I think it's fantastic. Um, I want to ask about the gardening, if that's okay. Um, as someone who has killed everything that he has tried to garden, do you do you find this a skill set? Is there some sort of in, intrinsic quality that makes you good at it? Because people who garden seem to be the most well-adjusted human beings on the planet, and I don't know what it says about me that I cannot and am incapable of doing it. So I, I guess I'm wondering, is this something that you got better at as you did it, or is it just something that you find you, that kind of came to you naturally? This would actually make you feel a lot better because I used to have a black thumb for a very long time and I killed everything I tried to grow. I 
I killed a cactus once. So that's a pretty black thumb until about a year and a half ago, I decided to try to grow habaneros because I'm a big fan of making my own hot sauce. And they did so well. And I kept them alive. Like I basically took it as a science project. And that's literally where I figured out, like, you know, if you follow the rules, lots of YouTube videos on how to take care of the plants, anybody can garden. And it's really rewarding when you don't kill a plant and you have something that you can actually cook with. So I just, you know, started doing it more often. And now I'm like a bit of a guru in terms of uh, having a flourishing patio garden. Well, that's amazing. The hot sauce thing is amazing. I feel like that needs to be in the, the bio too. <laughs> yeah, I not not that we, we can always cut this out, but I, I successfully grew a single tomato one time and I was super proud of myself and it wasn't quite ripe and I was just waiting for it. And then a squirrel took it, took a single bite out of it and then just placed it gently on our deck, almost like a trophy just to show me <laughs> what, a, what a failure I was as a gardener and a human being. And so I've never actually returned since then, but maybe maybe it'll inspire me to at least try with peppers because that sounds great. There is hope. There is hope for everyone. If I can become a gardener, you can sure, surely grow something. That's for sure. <sighs> Paul, that uh, I feel like we could talk about that squirrel for a while, but maybe <laughs> I know that was a journey. Yeah, maybe next time we're able to get together in person, Paul, you could tell me a little bit more about it. <laughs> but Huma, I wanted to hear a little bit about if you had any books to recommend to the audience. Actually, um, thinking about this, there's a book that I I recently finished. It's a book called um, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. He is a world-renowned uh, primatologist and psychologist. And I think it's a book that not only doctors should read, but literally everyone should read because he really delves into why we make the decisions that we make. And it's it's pretty dense, but I think going through that book, I've had a better understanding of why my patients make some of the decisions they make and also some of uh, a better understanding of why I do some of the things I do. So it's just a really nice way of understanding why human beings behave the way they do. And I strongly recommend it to everyone. Thank you. I I have not read that. I, I do need to really get under the hood more, uh, both for myself and my patients. So that sounds this sounds useful and practical. That's that's the kind of book of recommendation that I liked. So thank you. Paul, do you wanna get into anything else before we move on to the topic? I I like it just because I feel like you're given the life that you've led so far, I th- I feel like you might have some amazing advice for us. So it just I'll take any piece of advice, either something that you advice you received as a learner or advice that you frequently find yourself giving as an educator. Either one of those would be great. I think that um, something that I've learned kind of on my journey to the point where I am right now is I've learned it served me well to, to not try to repeat someone else's story, but really learn to write my own. And that's one thing that I frequently tell, you know, Uh, younger learners or residents or people that I work with is if you try too much to copy what someone else is doing, you tend to lose yourself. And it's important not to lose your identity as you craft your own path. And so the only thing that I, I think is like the single best thing that I've learned to do, and I'm still kind of in the process of learning to do that more and more is just to stick to, to my own story and what I want my career to be and to learn how to focus on my own path. Because there'll always be people who are better or less good than I am. And I have to be learn to be content with the milestones that I am able to accomplish. Amazing. Perfect. I'm glad I asked. Thank you. All right. Bahuma, so this is a really much requested topic. We've delved into it a little bit before, but this is definitely going to, we're going to go through some cases that are different than ones that we've discussed on the show before and ones that I find that I'm seeing a lot in my practice, both in primary care and in the hospital. But I find that the definition of what is a urinary tract infection is a little bit, it's hard to, it's hard to like put your finger on kind of. I, so can you tell me, how do you think about the, like the buckets of urinary tract infection, if you will, or the, are there buckets for UTI, Paul, like the categories, (laughs) buckets filled with urine? (laughs) I I might, I might go with categories. Yes. What what sort of frameworks do you have when you're thinking about UTIs? Why don't we say that? I just kind of starting from, I like to, to 
start with a general definition that I think works for me is I think of UTIs kind of about like significant bacteria plus signs and symptoms that localize the urinary tract. That's just like a pretty good definition that sort of, you can't really go wrong because you have the significant bacteria component of it. And then you also have the signs and symptoms localizing it to the urinary tract. And going off of that general uh, definition, I then break it down to uncomplicated UTIs and complicated UTIs. So when I'm thinking about complicated UTIs, I'm thinking about the localization is strictly limited to the bladder and below, and the patient doesn't have any other systemic symptoms. So that's significant bacteria plus signs and symptoms localizing to the lower urinary tract. Complicated UTIs, I'm thinking above the bladder. So significant bacteria, but this time you have signs and symptoms that localize above the bladder. And I'm thinking specifically signs and symptoms that make you start thinking about things like pilo. And then in addition to that, systemic symptoms, which then tend towards complications like sepsis or more deep-seated infections. If you want to break it down a little bit further, then you can start uh, thinking about UTIs in men and UTIs in women. Now, UTIs in men are generally, we're, we're taught that they are by definition considered to be complicated, but you can have an uncomplicated UTI in a man. I just think that that the, the blanket statement of that being complicated by definition is because it's a much rarer occurrence in men. And uh, when it tends to occur in men, there's usually an underlying condition that is predisposing to the UTI being present. In the contrary, for young women, it's a frequent occurrence. It's a common infection. It tends to be uncomplicated and limited to the bladder. So acute cystitis in women would generally be considered as uncomplicated. So that's really how I kind of just break it down and, and think about UTIs. That that's helpful, especially the complicated versus uncomplicated, because I I think it's um, Hooten who writes. I think he's written like reviews for New England Journal, and he writes the up to date. And that was the first time that I heard of this. Like complicated is more like either it's further up the tract or they have systemic symptoms versus uncomplicated is just it's it seems just to be lower and they don't really have systemic symptoms because it always seemed like a little bit of an overkill just to call everybody with a UTI that has some sort of abnormality or diabetes as complicated and treat them for like 14 days. It just seemed like too much. I agree with that. And I think that the reason why they tend to err on the side of labeling uh, certain classes of UTIs as complicated is because in patients who meet those criteria that you just defined, diabetics or patients with underlying immunosuppression, the risk for progression into a more severe infection is higher. And if you're treating a, a complicated UTI, the choice of antibiotics is even more important because you want antibiotics that achieve good levels in, in the blood and also good tissue levels. So you can't exactly label someone as uncomplicated and treat them with something that mainly, you know, concentrates in the bladder and run the risk of them sub subsequently developing in, an infection. So I think it's more um, making sure you don't mislabel those high-risk patients and making sure that you're taking that into consideration when you're picking your antibiotics to treat them. And we'll, we'll get into this with some of the cases later on, but the presence of a catheter, how does that sort of fit into the conceptual framework that you've sort of laid out for us so far? Is that automatically complicated or, or not necessarily? It's not necessarily complicated. For a catheter-associated UTI, that would simply be bacteria plus symptoms that localize to the urinary tract in the presence of a urinary catheter or shortly after the removal of, or, or, or symptoms developing shortly after the removal of a urinary catheter. So in a patient that was recently admitted and had a catheter in place, if they develop signs and symptoms of a UTI shortly after, they still meet the criteria for a catheter-associated UTI. But the presence of a catheter in itself doesn't by definition make the infection complicated. And I think we should probably, we've said the word a couple times, just make sure that we're all on the same page about the definition of bacteria. 
<laughs> bacteria um that's uh that's a can of worms so i'm just going to stick with uh the definitions we normally go by when i talk of significant bacteria i'm referring to a hundred thousand uh, colony forming units per milliliter of urine but i don't want the message to be that that's the cutoff that gives the 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 diagnosis of a UTI. In patients who have that 100,000 colony forming units per mil, 95% of those patients would actually have a UTI. But we have to remember that there is a a, a group of patients who would have between 1,000 and 10,000 or less than 100,000 colony forming units per mil who would still have a UTI if they have signs and symptoms localizing to the urinary tract. And that's about a third of patients with UTIs. So I I, I hesitate to put a number on the cutoff Mm -hmm. because it can be a little bit misleading, especially if you're trying to to tell learners that it's a combination of both bacteria plus signs and symptoms. I think you really need to be guided by the clinical signs and symptoms. Then the presence of bacteria adds to your rationale of calling it a UTI. All right. This goes back to our, our ages-old plea. If, we, if there was just one lab test that would just tell us the answer, that'd be so great. But it doesn't sound like that's going to happen in this case either. And I think the, the one of the points is about bacteria. It doesn't mean that the urinalysis has a leukesterase on the dipstick or nitrites on the dipstick. It's a, it's a we're we're getting that from the culture. So you, it's the it's the culture plus the clinical symptoms, and. We'll talk in, in in the first case. We will talk about the urinalysis, and and I want to hear how you interpret that. So, Paul, we got some great names for you tonight. I'd, I'd really love if you'd read uh, the cases. Yeah, we'll we'll talk offline about who wrote this particular script. And I'm just fascinated <laughs> by this patient's name in the context of the case. But without further ado, we're going to talk about Kath Foley, uh, presumably short for Catherine Foley. She is. You're going to be surprised to find out about her catheterization status. Is a 32 year old female. No significant past medical history. She presents to your office with dysuria and suprapubic pain. She says no fevers, no flank pains, no rigors. She's not feeling fatigued or malaise or no really evidence of systemic symptoms. And so right out the gate, we're, we're thinking that this, this feels like UTI. Um, so before we get too deep into the weeds with this, would you do any kind of lab testing in this particular patient? What you've just described is like the classic uh, case of uh, acute, uncomplicated cystitis in a young female. And um, those are the most frequent cases that we will see. And generally, I do not do any additional testing in these patients if the symptoms are clear and if, you know, they are female. And I, I know that this is pretty much an uncomplicated cystitis type picture. Now, if they were, if you had told me that her symptoms were more vague and a little less, less clear cut, then we can start thinking about doing a little bit more of a workup. By vague, you mean she says, oh, my urine was a slightly different color, but it, I wasn't burning. I didn't have fevers or anything. Or my, I had a funny odor to my urine. The malodorous urine is classic stuff. I was trying very hard to avoid the color and the odor uh, <laughs> symptoms, which, which patients frequently mention, but which are just really poor, have really poor uh, predictive value in terms of diagnosis of a, of a UTI. So yes, patients who come and tell you that they, they've noticed that their urine smells a little bit differently or the color has changed and they think they have a UTI, in those cases, I wouldn't say that that's a slam dunk acute cystitis type picture. And I would want to have uh, additional arguments to um, defend that diagnosis before I commit the the patient to antibiotics. Right. So when when the patient... It's it's like when the patient says, "Oh, my sputum was green." Doesn't that mean it's bacteria? And you're like, yeah, "You know that." I'm sorry. I wish it was that easy, but it doesn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't mean that un- unless. Uh, anyway, so this patient, Cath uh, Foley, she she wants some antibiotics. What are you going to go to as your first line for this uncomplicated cystitis in in a young woman with the, just typical symptoms? And important to note, a patient without a catheter in place or recent <laughs> catheterization. I just just for, Paul, just for clarity's it's a, sake, it's a clever name. <laughs> it's a thin line between clever and stupid. <laughs> I think yeah, that but, you know, just because she's female and she's thirty three and she's 
in ch of childbearing age, before we start talking about antibiotics, it's important that we make sure that she's not pregnant because that also has a huge impact on, on the choice of antibiotics that you can use to treat uh, cystitis. And again, that's not uncomplicated if the patient is pregnant. That's its own topic on its own. So we're talking about a 33-year-old female with acute cystitis who is not pregnant um, the good thing is the guidelines by the IDSA give us a broad variety of choices. And you have uh, up to four, I believe, uh, four first-line treatments that you can use in this type of scenarios. Uh, you have a choice between nitrofurantoin as first-line, uh, which is usually a five-day course of therapy. And uh, you can also go with trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. Um, but with the caveat that we're seeing increasing resistance to, to that combination, and you can only really use it if the resistance in, in your hospital, in your community is less than 20%. And um, that would usually also be a three to five day treatment. And thirdly, you could use uh, phosphomycin, which is a single dose, three grams, one time treatment, and you're done. I would like to, to mention, though, that uh, phosphomycin has been shown to have um, higher rates of, of recurrence and treatment failure in comparison to the other two that I mentioned before, so nitro nitrofurantoin and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. And uh, the fourth option that the guidelines give you is pifmicillinam, which is a beta-lactam drug, but it's not available in the U.S. So really, we're down to three options for your outpatient choices, and any of those would be good for this patient. I find the phosphomycin is, I believe it's a bit expensive for the dose, at, at least the last time I've prescribed it. It probably depends on your where you're practicing, but... It is uh it is nice that it's just like the one the one time dose and and some some places seem to have it under lock and key unless there's fluoroquinolone resistance like if you're trying to prescribe it in certain places the there's some sort of stewardship that I've seen they try to they keep it locked down. Yeah, that is true. Like it, depending on the institution, it may be restricted to ID. Um it is great because it's a single dose, but some insurances will not cover it, so it can get quite pricey for some mm -hmm. patients. Mm -hmm. And um I guess it's it's more a question of trying to reserve it for those patients who eventually select to resistance for some of the more common agents. That's the reason why you tend to have more strict stewardship in certain institutions because we do want to keep that option for uh, patients who are getting recurrent UTIs so that they can have that option down the road when we've kind of burned through some of the more um, frequently used first-line options. So I wanted to ask, uh, I think in in the past, I've seen people put on cephalexin or amoxicillin for this acute uncomplicated cystitis in like a non-pregnant woman and maybe the person has a sulfa allergy, but it seems like I'm seeing a lot of that used, even though the first line agents are the ones we just went over, the nitrofurantoin, the phosphomycin, the, the trim sulfa. That, that is true. There's an increasing use of beta-lactams, but it's really not what we recommend. And that there are a couple of reasons for that, because for one, they tend to have uh, more collateral damage in terms of how much damage they can do to the microbiome compared to some of the other agents that you have as first line, talking about nitrofurantoin, which um, mostly concentrates in the urine, and it's really a low impact on the, on the flora. And also uh, trimethoprim, sulfa, it, the combination in itself has fewer collateral damage uh, in terms of risk for developing C. diff. And in addition to that, beta-lactams tend to have higher failure rates when they've been compared head-to-head -head with these other agents. So we're really not going for those as first line in our non-pregnant patient population. When you talk about pregnant women, then the choices become a little bit more narrow and you find yourself having to go to some of these agents that we, ne we don't necessarily go for in, in, in other populations. I feel like I, I don't want to, just because we see this so much, I, I just want to spend a little bit more time on this case, and I'm, I hope you don't mind. But I feel like where we kind of trip ourselves up is where we'll do a point of care urinalysis for someone who actually has what seems to be a clinical slam dunk diagnosis. And then the point of care urinalysis comes back kind of bland, like maybe some trace blood or maybe trace lukes, but nothing super compelling. Does the clinical picture trump that point of care urinalysis? Do you send it out for formal urinalysis? 
what's your approach in that specific situation? Because I feel like I see. Well, I, I find that the, your analysis is actually a pretty good test for ruling out UTIs because on the urinalysis, you will be able to get uh, some information on leukocyte esterase, which basically tells you whether you know, the patient has white blood cells in, in their urine or not. And the limit of detection, by the time you are able to get a positive leukocyte esterase test, you need to have at least 10 white blood cells in that sample of urine, which essentially meets the cutoff that makes you think right. that this is right. probably a UTI. So if I do a dipstick and my leukocyte esterase is negative, my, my, my prediction that this is actually acute cystitis really goes down way low. And you're saying the the pi pyuria, like if, if you were if you were then do the microscopy and count the white yes. cells per high power field yep. to be at least ten exactly in um, order to be able to have that to be picked up on right. a dipstick. So it's yeah. it's yeah. a good ruling out tool, but you know it's kind of like it's a good tool when you're kind of dealing with a patient who has symptoms and you're not a hundred percent sure that that's what they have. If you did a dipstick and your your leukocyte esterase was completely negative, the chances that, that you're dealing with a UTI or an acute cystitis is really low. You, you need to be thinking about other causes. Now for the nitrites, that gets a little bit different. It depends on when you collect the sample because really for that conversion of nitrates to nitrites to happen, the urine needs to be sitting in the bladder for greater than four hours. So we usually want an early morning first void sample uh, to be able to actually increase um, the yield of that test. Otherwise, if the patient has already voided, has had lots of water to drink, and there's a dilution component to it, you could have a falsely negative nitrite test. And in addition to that, you only get the nitrite test to be useful uh, because it, it's only a certain group of bacteria that for which that test would be right. positive. It's your enter enteric bacteria, we're talking E. coli, Klebsiella, Proteus. You're not going to get um, uh, uh, coag-negative staphs to convert nitrates to nitrites. You're not going to get staph aureus to do that either. You're not going to get enterococcus to do that. So you would still miss some other organisms, but you can effectively rule out enteric, enteric bacteria if you get the right sample at the right time. I am so mad that I did not know that before. Not <laughs> <laughs> Neither did I, Paul. That was the right, four-hour th wait time. Uh, I did. I did not uh, know that. So that's for the. That is a tremendous. That's pearl. for the the nitrates, the leukesterase. We could see that even right away. Yes, it and, the, the and, and another thing about the leukocyte esterase is even lysed uh, white blood cells would produce. So it doesn't have to be whole cells. Like it doesn't have. It. So even if it the the quality of the urine sample is a little bit less of a factor in terms of detecting leukocyte esterase compared to what I just said about nitrites, where you really need to have the first void of or urine that's been staying in, that has been in the bladder for a certain number of hours to kind of increase the level of detection. So returning to our case, the case of a Kath Foley, who, again, it cannot be said enough, does not have a <laughs> catheter in place and has never had a Foley cath in place. Let's say that our patient has a history of two to three urinary tract infections per year, and she also reports a history of interstitial cystitis. She completed a course of, of cephalexin for seven days, didn't notice any kind of improvement. So for someone who is having sort of recurrent UTIs, which is the case that we're presenting here, how does that change your workup? How does that change your management of this patient? You know, because she still, she still fits into that category where we expect her to have acute cystitis, and it's pretty common in that demographic. And you, you'd be surprised to, to know that about 60% of women who present with a UTI will have a recurrence within six months. So the number is pretty high. And the way in which I sort of um, decide what I do in terms or what I do differently depends on when they're presenting with the recurrence, right? So in this case, she's coming pretty soon after the first time she was treated. My immediate worry is that, is this a recurrence or is this a relapse? So was I treating her wrongly the first time? So I want to get a urine culture to make sure I know what she's growing and make sure that the next time my choice of antibiotic is accurate and it's covering whatever bug is causing her symptoms. Uh, in this particular case, if I were to get a urine sample and want to empirically treat while I wait for that sample, I would avoid choosing 
the antibiotic that she had just completed. So I would go for one of those um, first three uh, first line um, drugs that I had mentioned before, just as a reminder, talking about nitrofurantoin, uh, trimethoprim sulfur, or phosphomycin, I would go for one of those three. But in this case, because her symptoms have come back so quickly or haven't improved at all in, on, on the course of antibiotics, I do want to get a urine culture to make sure that I know what she's growing and I'm targeting appropriately. Now, if I change it up a little bit and she had actually shown up to the clinic three months later with same symptoms after she had had complete resolution of her symptoms the first time, I would treat that second UTI that's recurring, I would treat that as a recurrence. And I would still go for empiric treatment and wouldn't necessarily uh, be ordering a culture because it's not that uncommon to have these people come back. And they would actually, a lot of them will come back with a recurrence within six months. Now, if they come the third time, then now you really do want to start documenting what it is they're growing and building a history, because that's someone who potentially down the road is going to have more recurrences, and you want to be more targeted and more careful with your antibiotic selection. So in the past, uh, probably this is, this. I'm definitely not thinking this is the right thing to do. In the past, I, I used to just see, let's say earlier on in my training, and this is now 10 years ago, I would just see everyone just get thrown on ciprofloxacid every time they called in with a urinary tract infection. What's wrong with the quinolone for a patient like this that's having recurrent UTIs? They've, they've gotten a lot of bad press lately, and rightfully so. First of all, I don't think that it's narrow enough if you're treating an acute uh, case of cystitis to, to go for a quinolone. We're seeing additional um, uh, resistance. We're seeing lots of resistance to, to the fluoroquinolones. And the guidelines actually recommend not to go to use them, especially if you have a resistance greater than 10% uh, in, in the population or kind of in your geographic location. Thirdly, um, they have lots of adverse events or associated or are associated with lots, lots of adverse effects. And I'm thinking specifically uh, new black box labels kind of um, associating the fluoroquinolones to neurologic manifestations uh, and they have the well-documented uh, association with tendinitis, as well as um, the known association with QTC prolongation. In addition to that, they're not very sparing of the microbiome. So I always want uh, people to think about the choice of antibiotics as which antibiotic is going to solve the problem that I'm trying to treat and cause the least damage in that process. Unfortunately, fluoroquinolones are not very good at the collateral damage part of things. And they would wreck your microbiome. And it's not uncommon to see someone get a short course for a case of cystitis and then show up with C. diff. And that's the last thing we want to do for our patients. So definitely not recommended as first or second line or even third line for simple acute cystitis. Yeah. And I would just caution people. I think we've said this before, but like if you put someone with acute, like just simple cystitis on a quinolone and they get like a tendon rupture or neuropathy, they could potentially sue you. Plus, you'll probably feel terrible that that happened to them. Uh, so there's many reasons not to do it. Absolutely agree. Are there patients, so for whom, since recurrence is so common, is is it worthwhile to just have refills for, say, like a first line um, treatment for acute cystitis. So give the patient a couple of refills. So if they have a couple of UTIs per year, they don't have to call your office every time. Is that a reasonable thing to do? Or barring that, at what point would you put someone on suppressive therapy uh, who's having recurrent cystitis? So I guess those are two different questions. Yeah, actually, the first the first option is something that I've done before. For patients who have... Um, who have recurrences and who are reliable and who know their symptoms and what they feel like when they get a case of cystitis, it's not unreasonable to give them a course of antibiotics and say, you know, if you feel your symptoms coming on and you know that this is about a cystitis, just treat yourself. I've done that before. Now, that's quite different from putting someone on long-term suppressive uh, therapy for their recurrences. And that gets into a an area where I'm less comfortable, uh, I'm less comfortable doing that because that's just really bad for stewardship. And it, it sets the patient up for selecting for resistant organisms 
down the road. There are studies which have clearly demonstrated that when patients have recurrent UTIs and are placed on prophylactic antibiotics, those treatments do reduce the frequency of recurrence. Now, what my general guidance is, is I tend to have a conversation with the patient about the pros and the cons of putting them on suppressive antibiotic therapy. And one thing that we must remember is that in a patient who has completely normal um, urinary tract with no obstruction, no anatomic abnormality, recurrent UTIs will not cause long-term damage. So it's more a, a question of discomfort on the patient's side of things and balancing that with whatever perceived benefit they could draw from prophylactic therapy, which could cause them problems down the line. And I generally find that if you take time to explain to the patient that, you know, this could help in the short term, but would create problems for you down the line, they're usually willing to work with you with and, and come up with an approach that would be sparing of going down that prophylaxis route. So it's just worth knowing these things and knowing how to approach these conversations with patients. One of the ones I've seen, and I'm just curious, uh, the methanamine is is one of the ones, and I, I think I've even seen patients with interstitial cystitis that are put on it, maybe because it's it's hard to tell when they do or don't have a urinary tract infection and they have chronic symptoms. Is is that one that you've seen? And I, I was taught to think of it as a wimpier antibiotic, but I'm not really sure if that's true. Re- really what um, methanamine does is it is in the urine, it's converted to formaldehyde, and that in itself creates an acidic environment, which is sort of an antiseptic. So it's, it's, it, it has antibiotic properties or antiseptic properties in the bladder by the virtue of the fact that it is converted to formaldehyde. And generally, you will see some patients who would show up and tell you I've used this before, and it has helped me. Now, the data, when you look at the clinical trials that have been done, they've been pretty poorly designed, small size studies that don't really give you a clear-cut answer as to whether this is beneficial or not. But generally, it doesn't really cause harm. And because recurrent UTIs can be a pretty bothersome issue for patients, if a patient subjectively reports that they've had benefit from it, I wouldn't necessarily stop it, but personally, I would not prescribe it. So that's kind of how I, I, I view uh, methanamine. There are a couple of other agents like, like that, um, which are available over the counter. You don't even need a prescription for. I'm thinking specifically about something like D-manos that you can find uh, basically in health stores. And the indication is for recurrent UTIs as well. Some patients would come in and tell you they're taking that. That works in, at the level of the bladder and it, it, it's thought to reduce the ability of bacteria to actually adhere to the epithelium and cause infection. Again, the studies are small, poor quality studies. There are really no clear answers as to whether it works or not. Does it cause harm? I don't really think so. If a patient is taking it as a supplement and they feel subjectively better or that it improves their symptoms, I wouldn't push it too far to say, you know, absolutely don't go there, but I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I think because we have some more cases left, I think we should move on, but I think we've laid a lot of the groundwork that we'll probably be able to 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 push through these. So, Paul, would you like to read the second <laughs> the second case? Sure, sure. Um again, I did not write this. <laughs> so, we're going to talk about Willie Legbag, uh, who is Kathy's 50-year older brother, um, not, not 50 years older, he's 50 years old. Um, he has high blood pressure, obesity, well-controlled diabetes. He presents the office and he's complaining of, or I should say reporting, uh, dysuria and frequency without pain, rating to the tip of the penis. Um, he is without pelvic pain. He's not having any flank pain. There are no fevers. There are no rigors. He is not reporting any mental status changes, which is good because I, I feel like people don't disclose those all the time. So... I guess where we're going for this patient, so this is a 50-year-old male with some, maybe a little bit multi-morbid, who's coming in with sort of some symptoms of, of UTI. How, because this patient is male, and we sort of, we talked a little bit about whether or not this is complicated or not up front, how would your approach differ for this patient um, because he's male? Yeah, because it's male, like I mentioned before, we are taught with reason to sort of think of them as uh, 
of complicated UTIs. And that's just because when it tends to occur in men, there is usually an underlying uh, provoking factor that has led to them actually developing a UTI. If you think about um, the prevalence of UTIs in men between the ages of five of 15 and 50, we're talking about five to eight per 10,000 per year. And that's way, 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 way lower than the numbers that we see in females. So if this guy is 50, he's right at that cutoff when I'm starting to worry about things that could cause obstruction. And I would lean more towards like labeling him in that complicated until I know differently category. So I, in this patient, I want to know why he's presenting with a UTI for the first time at 50. Does he have underlying BPH? Is there a stone somewhere? Is there something new that has happened that has now predisposed him to developing a UTI? And I think one other thing that it's worth uh, reminding the audience about is that when males present with UTIs, it's also important to figure out are they sexually active or not because some of the symptoms with STIs would sort of cross over and it's, you, you have to kind of be mindful of some of the other differentials that you want to work them up for when you're thinking through these cases. Unlike our, our acute cystitis in a woman, this patient, is, is he automatically going to get a urinalysis and culture if he's coming to see you and does he need a prostate exam as well? If he's coming to see me for the first time for the UTI, 50-year-old man with the underlying conditions that you've described, yes, upfront, I will get a urine culture and I would do a proper workup. Just because the potential of him having something more severe is so much higher that I don't want to miss and blow it off with something like nitrofurantoin when there is underlying pathology that could go undiagnosed and then lead to a more complicated clinical picture. So in these patients, you're thinking quite up right, right when you first meet them and, and you hear the story, immediately you're starting to think about why is he developing a UTI? What could possibly be an underlying condition that has predisposed him to this? And you're trying to build your work up along those lines of thought. So I know we were talking a little bit um, before recording, I, I think when I was in training, I, th I think I knew vaguely that prostatitis existed, but it's not something that was really on my differential. Like I knew it was out there, but I couldn't tell you clinically quite what it looked like or sort of what to do about it, maybe, which means I was not a very good resident, I guess. So, but why don't I turn this into a teaching point and ask you, sir, for this patient, would you suspect prostatitis or if not, when, what clinical picture makes you think about prostatitis? Actually, acute prostatitis is not as common as people think it is. Usually, um, in terms of acute prostatitis, only about 5% of cases of prostatitis are actually in that acute category. And it tends not to be a very silent clinical picture. These are patients who come in and are actually sick. So they have fever, they will have uh, perineal pain, they will have systemic symptoms, they would, they would look sick. There's not going to be someone who presents like an acute cystitis and is like, I have a mild, some mild suprapubic pain and, you know, I have some burning when I pee. Things that I specifically look at that point me towards a diagnosis of acute prostatitis, the prostate is usually acutely tender. And so these are patients who would complain of peroneal pain, perineal pain, and they might also present with retention if the prostate is so inflamed that it's causing an obstruction. So these should be alarm bells that make you start to think about uh, things like prostatitis. You also mentioned in, in the case that this patient has underlying uh, diabetes. Uh, cases of uh, patients who have underlying immunosuppression or underlying conditions that could predispose them to uh, infections tend to be higher risk for more invasive or more serious infections of the urinary tract and he will be uh, a good candidate to, to kind of think about, is this early prostatitis or is this something else? What would you, what would you, how would you approach the antibiotic choice for this gentleman? His, his A1C has been well controlled and we think that he doesn't look that sick. He doesn't have systemic symptoms. We're really not worried for acute bacterial prostatitis after hearing your description. Yeah, if he doesn't really have systemic symptoms, he's not complaining about 
uh, any of the symptoms that I mentioned before, and then acute bacterial prostatitis definitely goes down uh, my differential. Another thing, if you if he's kind of in a box where you're not quite sure you are sufficiently ruling out an early acute prostatitis that is not yet quite as florid as I just described, it's useful to do a rectal exam because in acute prostatitis, it will be acute, the prostate will be acutely tender. I know there's usually some fear about doing a a prostate exam when you suspect acute prostatitis and there's some concern that you could seed bacteria and cause a bacteremia, but a gentle prostate exam is not contraindicated. The prostate is so tender that you know, you shouldn't even be able to do it if that patient has acute prostatitis. So it's quite useful if you have that finding to kind of support that diagnosis. Which, which antibiotics for, for, let's say, let's take prostatitis off the table first and say, just for a man walking into your office with what seems like a urinary tract infection, and we don't think it's a sexually transmitted infection, what, uh, what might you do antibiotic-wise for him? Would they be the same three choices as for a woman, or would it be something different, and would the duration differ? The same three choices as for women, and um, the duration would not differ. If I'm able, if I have already classified that patient that we've just described as acute simple cystitis in a man, then the top three choices that I mentioned before still apply. Now, if we reclassify them and we put them in the complicated category, then durations and choice of antibiotics begin to change at that time. So if he had, um, if we knew he had like some prior prostate issues, maybe he's had, uh, and he's had history of urinary tract, stone disease, things like that, you're saying you might put them on like a bigger gun agent, like a fluoroquinolone, and the duration might be longer? I would certainly be trying to look for agents that have better penetration and better levels in the tissue and in the blood. So I'm going to avoid like your nitrofurantoin, which again, mainly concentrates in the bladder and very little of it would actually sufficiently penetrate uh, the tissues or have sufficient levels in the serum uh, to actually be um, adequate to treat a severe infection. So yes, I would go for something like the the fluoroquinolones. Trimethoprim sulfur still has, achieves pretty good levels in, in, in the blood and also uh, can be used to treat more complicated infections like prostatitis, depending on if you have a sensitive organism. So that would still be an acceptable choice, but I would definitely be avoiding my nitrofurantoin and phosphomycin, which would not achieve good levels in the tissue if I'm thinking of more serious infections. The, the old 10 to 14 days for someone that we're thinking is more complicated. In clinical practice now, uh, especially if you have good follow-up with the person, do you feel comfortable shortening it to a seven-day course or or less than 10 days, less than 14 days? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was actually a really large uh, VA study, a retrospective study that looked at treatment of UTIs in men and looked at, it was over 40,000 veterans, and looked at treatment of, uh, of, of UTIs following a seven-day course and compared that to a 14-day course. And they did not find um, higher levels of recurrence in patients who were treated for shorter. They did, however, find that those who received longer courses of antibiotics had higher uh, occurrences of C. diff and all the other complications that are associated with with, uh, antibiotic use. So I am less worried, bothered by shortening the course in men if I am sure that this is, I have a diagnosis, I have a bug, I'm putting the patient on the right antibiotic, seven days is plenty, and I will just limit it to that. So, Paul, uh, I guess there's one more part to this case I, before I ask you to read the third part. So I, I forgot there was one more part to this one. This is something that I have, I've seen this done. Paul, have you done this where the, it, when you read about UTIs, they mention that you can give a dose of an IV agent in your office or an, maybe even an intramuscular agent in the office. It's not something I've done. I don't know, Paul. No, it's not something. That, I, th- I think it, we would have the capacity to do it, but I don't see it done often where I think if you suspect pilo or, or in, I think in the case of an acute prostatitis, you could consider, well, actually, I think it's encouraged to give an IV dose of antibiotic and then follow that up with oral therapy, but not something that I do typically. Um, 
is that something that we should be doing? I guess is a question that you're asking here. I think it's it's something that you would do depending on the patient. And I actually did that recently for a patient who, again, was a guy who showed up with signs and symptoms of a UTI, but this was a um, second recurrence uh, in the space of six months. And immediately I was worried about an obstructive process. He didn't have any systemic symptoms. He just had um, burning with urination and some suprapubic tenderness. So I gave him a dose of ceftriaxone in the office and we got a urine sample. And he grew, um, we, we got a urine sample and we also got blood cultures. Uh, because that was a second recurrence. And he had other underlying issues that um, immunosuppression that could predispose him to a severe uh, infection. And both his urine culture and his blood culture came back positive with E. coli. But he had gotten the dose of ceftriaxone and was sent home with Cipro. And so we called him back and we admitted him to the hospital and he, it turned out he did have a stone and was obstructed and ended up needing a stent. Oh, wow. So in those, you kind of have to triage if a patient is high risk enough that you worry that although I'm starting antibiotics, there is the potential that this could be something more severe. In those cases, you really want to start out your treatment as a treatment of a complicated UTI. So you're looking for an agent that has good levels in the bloodstream, good tissue uh, levels, and then you're prescribing an oral course while waiting for additional data to figure out what would be the subsequent treatment for them to complete their course with. So uh, we've realized after recording this that we kind of glazed over some of the specifics of treatment for complicated UTI. So I wanted to get a little more granular here. For patients who are stable, they're outpatients, you think they can keep down pills, you could use a fluoroquinolone, which will achieve good blood levels, or you can give them a single dose of IV cephalosporin, like ceftriaxone, or you can give them ertapenem, a single dose, and then you can step down to an oral agent uh, to complete the course, like trimsulfa, amoxclav, or a cephalosporin given by mouth, and you can do your 7 to 14-day course. For patients admitted that are a little bit sicker with a complicated UTI, but don't have a lot of resistance, like risks for resistance, you can give initial IV therapy with ceftriaxone, piptazo, or a fluoroquinolone. And then finally, as we'll talk about with our last case, for really much sicker patients, you can go for it with a big gun like a carbapenem, especially if they have risk factors for multidrug-resistant organisms. And then you can adjust your therapy based on the culture results. And one pearl that Bahuma told me is that for patients with complicated urinary tract infection plus a bacteremia, she will switch to an oral agent, either a fluoroquinolone or trimsulfa, because those are the two antibiotics that are commonly used for UTIs that do achieve good blood levels. Okay, so now back to the discussion. All right. So I think we can, Willie Legbag, who, who Paul, for the record, he does not have a leg bag. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, noted. So noted. <laughs> when I, we have we have the yeah. great Dr. Kate Grant to thank for these names, and I I should say that I just randomly threw them into the cases, not really thinking about the fact that it would bother you so much that <laughs> the names didn't make sense for the patients I assigned them to. <laughs> so now I'm sure. really happy that I did. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to talk about the third case? Should we talk yes. about the third case? I yes, like please. Yeah, so just to recap, we've had Kath Foley and Willie Legbag, neither of whom have had catheters in place. Um, we're now going to be talking about Detrusor, a 26-year-old male with paraplegia, prior history of gunshot wound. He's admitted with a fever of 102 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and fatigue, no sensation below T10 as a result of his gunshot wound. While he does not complain of urinary symptoms, abdominal pain, or flank pain, he does note worsening of his chronic spasticity and says this occurs whenever he has a UTI. Uh, Detrusor has a suprapubic catheter in place and a history of ESBL E. coli urinary tract infection. So the, I guess, again, if we could sort of start broad and then narrow down the case, can you just talk to us a little bit about how the presentation of UTI might differ in someone who has either paraplegia or quadriplegia, and then we can sort of proceed from there. Yeah. Uh, in our quads and our, uh, paraplegic patients are usually those that we have the most trouble with because they would come in frequently with UTIs. And what I've learned is that um, the symptoms and signs that they present with can also be quite different depending on the level 
of their paralysis. So they would have different, um, different manifestations of their neurogenic bladder or kind of the way in which they experience symptoms when they actually have um, a UTI that's, that's ongoing. But things that frequently come up is that these patients would would notice increased spasticity. They've had UTIs so many times that they kind of know how they feel when they get these infections. And it's usually a feeling of when I, when I have a UTI, I, I tend to be more tired. I'm just, I just don't feel right. My appetite isn't, isn't right. A lot of them have uh, a good sense of, of what their urine looks and smells like. For these particular cases, although, you know, I generally don't pay much attention to that, in these patients, I tend to ask them, have you noticed the change in the color or the odor? Because they're having UTIs so frequently that they're pretty good at identifying the cues. And in these patients as well, they tend to present more floridly and a higher risk of, you know, having complications and developing sepsis. So again, could present in a septic picture like the patient you've just described. So those are the things I'm really looking for in my uh, paraplegic and tetraplegic patients. When I see these people, the first thing that's going through my mind is I'm really intimidated by this <laughs> long history of culture data and all the sensitivities that they have. But let's make it a little easier on me. Let's say I'm the hospitalist and I don't have all these cultures and sensitivities to look through, but I just need to take my best guess. So somebody like this that says, listen, I've had a history of drug, uh, drug-resistant organisms. What might be a reasonable choice to go through? Uh, you know, Piptazo, Cefepim, Carbapenems, what, do, what should we be thinking about for this guy? Uh, going back to this particular case that you've just described, he's obviously coming in quite sick. And knowing that these are usually patients who do have uh, multiple drug-resistant organisms, when they come in sick, you cannot be faulted if you went pretty big and went with a Carbapenem up front. But I think the most important thing is to ensure that before you give them the antibiotics, you collect the, the, the urine culture sample and your blood cultures, because you can always subsequently narrow within the first 48 hours once you have some culture data without doing you know significant uh, damage to their microbiome or giving them C. diff in the process. So I would say if they come in and they're sick and you don't know what their culture history is, get your urine culture, get your blood cultures, go broad, and then narrow once you have the culture data. When someone has a, I know if someone has a chronic indwelling Foley, my practice is usually to remove that entire system, place a new Foley and send the culture from that new system, like from a, a fresh Foley specimen. Uh, maybe that's not the right thing to do. So you'll tell us. And does that differ if they have this gentleman we said has a super pubic catheter? I don't think that's quite as easy to change. So does collecting the sample uh, differ between those two groups? Well, you know, if what you just described in terms of removing the catheter and then replacing it and trying to get a fresh specimen, that is what is recommended to get your best specimen that's not basically whatever gunk is, was sitting in his bladder. Oftentimes, these patients will come in with suprapubic catheters and you're not able to get a hold of urology to maybe um, replace it and then get a new sample. You, I think it's more important to me to at least have some right. culture data than to have no culture data at all and then give them a bunch of antibiotics just because we weren't sure that we weren't able to, to get the urine sample in the right way. In these patients, polymicrobial growth in the urine is almost the rule <laughs> rather than the exception. So I'm not going to be surprised that even in that well-collected sample, you're still going to have multiple organisms uh, grow out of that urine culture. And it's more a matter of trying to figure out what is causing the infection at this time. Uh, what is he just colonized with as opposed to what is actually driving the process that he's currently experiencing. And I think that that is where, you know, we don't mind when you actually give us a call and, and call in the consult and we can actually help uh, with making some of that triaging. Sure. Yeah, I almost always, uh, if I'm being honest, consult <laughs> infectious diseases for a patient like this with this intimidating history did did we talk about gram positive coverage for this gentleman as well? Just since he has 
since he has the catheter, do you do you think about putting gram-positive coverage on for catheters to cover MRSA? Or I mean, carbapenem's covering pretty much all gram-positives, right? Just not, or most gram-positives, just not MRSA. Yeah, well, if you're talking about a guy like this case who has been to the hospital and presume pr- possibly multiple times for recurrent UTIs, and he's coming in pretty sick, even if you're pretty confident that it's his bladder that's uh, the, the source of the infection, you can never be 100% sure. And I'm not going to fault anyone for empirically covering him for staph aureus and uh, putting on a carbapenem through the door because he's coming in septic and has frequent, frequent contact with the healthcare system. You can always narrow. You can always, always narrow with this patient. So if they come in sick, it's acceptable to go broad. But if they're coming in with, you know, for something else, or they're coming in with mild symptoms, and you're sure that this is probably just a UTI, and you've collected your sample, and you don't necessarily have to cover for for staph aureus or MRSA in that in that in that case, because that's really not the organism that you worry about when you're dealing with a catheter-associated UTI. If you look through the UTI guidelines for catheter-associated infections, uh, for fully-associated infections, this MRSA is not even mentioned in the entire guideline. So I'm not empirically covering if I'm pretty confident that this is a urinary source. It's just if the person's really sick and you can't afford to be wrong, there could be a, another, and you, you, it might not be the urine that's infection. It might be maybe they have a pneumonia or something or some sort of prosthetic implant infection. And so you just can't be wrong. You, you cover. Okay. Exactly. And just coming back to kind of the paraplegic and tetraplegic patients, these are frequently patients that have skin breakdown because they're bedridden. And so you can never, when they come in septic, you can never rule out like a skin source of, of, for their sepsis, you know. So in that case, the picture is never clear cut that it's just this bladder and this catheter that's the source of infection. And in those cases, it's better to be broad and then narrow. And I, I feel like I'd heard at some point that it is extraordinarily rare to actually have a MRSA urinary tract infection. It's usually the kidneys have been seeded by something if there, if there is, in fact, MRSA in the urine. Is that still the paradigm or is that sort of... That the- is absolutely correct. When you find MRSA in the urine, you should actually be looking for a systemic MRSA infection elsewhere. So I, I, MRSA in the urine to me means MRSA bacteremia onto proven contrary. And, and it's not the urine that's the source there's something somewhere else that you should be looking for. Well, to to round it out with this case with Detruser, he ends up having Klebsiella in the blood and it's sensitive to ceftriaxone. So we we initially put him on, let's say, miropenem, and then we, we narrowed it down to ceftriaxone and he's getting better. It's now uh, day seven. Do we need to keep going with the antibiotics? He got better within the first 48 hours. Right. And that's a question that I get all the time. And I think I'm hoping that after this episode, people might get a little bit more comfortable <laughs> with uh, shorter courses of uh, antibiotics for susceptible gram-negative organisms. Now, it is acceptable to treat for a short course if you have an organism that is susceptible to the antibiotic that you're treating with and the patient has uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremia, and their symptoms rapidly resolve. And we, we have a growing body of data and a couple of studies that have been done recently. Uh, the one I frequently like to refer to is a CID paper that was published last year, which looked at uncomplicated gram-negative bacteremias and compared seven days of treatment uh, to 14 days of treatment, and they found that um, a, a shorter course of therapy was not inferior to a two-week course of therapy. Now, I have to add that there are a few caveats to, to that particular study. Patients who had sepsis and had um, uh, uh, shock as a result of their sepsis were not included in the study. Patients who had multidrug-resistant organisms were also not included in the study. Patients who didn't clear their cultures or had um, uh, sources of infection that needed debridement or drainage were not included in the study. We're simply talking about patients who have transient bacteremias that rapidly resolve with the right antibiotic. In those cases, it's absolutely acceptable to treat them with a shorter course of seven days. 
And these were Enterobacter, so like yes. the yes. E. coli, Klebsiella, the ones that we most frequently see. Yes, gram-negative organisms. It didn't include Pseudomonas, which, it, again, is its own thing. <laughs> Paul, since we always like to comment on trial names, I noticed this was the Bacteremia Duration Study Group. Cardiology, what do you, they, the cardiology <laughs> never would have let that fly. No, absolutely not. No, entirely too descriptive. There's not some, it doesn't mean anything. It's far too useful. <laughs> the infectious disease doctors, they, they might want to talk to the cardiologists about branding their trials a little bit better. Because this one, I think this deserves a lot more play than it, it probably got. Yeah. I mean, surely there's some planet that hasn't been taken that we can, we can come up with something. It's just <laughs> yeah. have them call us. We'll work on it with them. Paradigm UTI, just steal uh, from the cardiologist. Oh, so good. <laughs> the strong urine trial. There's, I mean, it's just, there's plenty. There's lots of stuff. We could do it. Well, I, Paul, do you have any other questions? I mean, I know we could go on for a long time, but we've, we've been going for around an hour, maybe a little more. So maybe we yeah, wrap it great. up and, okay. Yep. I think let's hear some take home points and, and let our excellent guests go. All right. All right, my, my biggest take-home points would be UTIs are common, and you'd see them pretty frequently. They're not that easy or straightforward to diagnose. Uh, when picking an antibiotic, I want you to think about collateral damage and keeping it brief, treating your infection, but making sure in the process you don't cause the patient more trouble. And I think that that pretty much wraps up what my thoughts are. Thank you. We always like to give our guests a chance. Did you want to plug anything, maybe anything you've done, or if you want to promote any of your friends, uh, up to you. Actually, I do uh, write a global health blog um, when I find the spare time to, and I, I like blogging about aspects of global health that specifically related to infectious diseases. So you can check out my blog at uh, theidoc.net. And, um, you know, read an article, drop me a, a message. And I'd like to give a big shout out to all the people at Emory ID. I did tell my program director, Wendy Armstrong, that I'll be on the show tonight. So shout out to Wendy and to all my co-fellows um, listening. Okay. We will fade this into our outro. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Sure. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. You know, Paul Stewart is threatening to come back, and I I, I miss the guy. I, I think it's going to happen soon. I God, I hope so. I never thought that I would miss him <laughs> as much as I do, but I, I actually kind of do a little bit, so... <laughs> Well, we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That really does help the show, helps other people find the show. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the music that you are presumably hearing right now. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.